We are back in Matthew's gospel. It's been a little while. Took a slight hiatus, but um, if you're new with us, we have these ESV scripture journals. They are um, they have the pages of scripture on the left-hand side and then just blank-lined pages on the right-hand side. So you want to find yours at home, dust it off, bring it with you. We also have a stack of about something like 15 of them on the back table there. If you would like one, it's our gift to you, no strings attached. Does anybody want this one? Duff. There you are, my friend. Use those, interact with them. We're in uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8 um, this morning. So I'm just going to jump right in. The title of this message this morning is How Jesus Treats the Ones Who Don't Seem to Fit. So I want that to kind of just be simmering a bit in the background and coloring how we view this passage. Um, last time we were in Matthew was September 5th, 2021. And we spent all last summer covering the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And Matthew's gospel is this historical, masterful piece of ancient literature about the world's most significant person. I don't think that that is an understatement. I think Christians and non-Christians would agree that possibly no human being has ever had the kind of influence that Jesus of Nazareth has had. And you've probably heard me say this before, uh, but before studying Matthew deeply, I engaged this gospel. It's the very first gospel, this first story of Jesus's life in the New Testament. I engaged it as interesting and for sure as scripture, but I, don't, I did not see the literary treasure that is here and present in Matthew's gospel. The gospel writers, not just Matthew, but Matthew indeed, they, they did not just sit down and start to record the events of Jesus's life as they remembered them. And then they finally came to the end, then they just wrapped it up and put a bow on it. Uh, they, uh, they designed this gospel with theological purpose. They, they designed the gospels rather with theological purpose. So Matthew, as you read it, it's like a, a massive body of water. You can skim across the top. You can play on the top of the water. You can explore under the surface of the water, 10, 20, 30, 40 feet deep, or you can really go on a deep dive into the depths to see uh, beauty and relevance uh, that, that, you're, that, that we easily miss when we're just skimming across the surface. And you can interact with it in all three ways, and all three ways are good for our upbuilding as well. So it's good for reading broadly. You can just read, there's 28 chapters. It's a pretty long gospel. It'll take you three, four, five hours to work through. So you can read it broadly and you will receive from that or you can study it deeply. Now, I wanna just give you by way of introduction because it's been a, a while since we've been out of Matthew, just a teaser uh, of, of the significance and, and of, the, um, of the intentionality that Matthew has written this gospel with. So um, Matthew opens with a bit of a title. There's black Bibles around the room, and I hope you brought your Bible. If you didn't, start, bring, start bringing your Bible or use the scripture journal. But open to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It starts with a bit of a title. It's 16 words in English, but if you transliterate it, in the Greek, it's only eight words. We need the words of and the. 
um, but the Greeks don't need it in the way that they write. So this is the way that Matthew opens in verse 1, chapter 1. He says, book Genesis. That's that word genealogy, is Genesis. So Matthew's trying to make us think back in time to the beginning of the scripture. So he says, book Genesis, Jesus, Messiah, that's Christ, son David, son Abraham. This clues us in on what Matthew is trying to do with this gospel. So he's, he's trying to, he's alluding to the fact that Jesus is a kind of new beginning. He is creating a new people. He is not only doing that, but he's also Messiah. He's the one who Israel has been looking for. We've talked about this frequently in the last 16 weeks in our whole uh, story series. So he's Messiah, but he's also the promised king who comes in the line of David. You'll remember some of that through the whole story. And he also is the promised offspring of Abraham who would come to bless the nations. Matthew is trying to show us here that Jesus is the king of the Jews. He's the creator king. And he opens in chapter one with a genealogy, which we find problematic because as soon as we come to the lists of names in the scriptures, it's like for Westerners like us, our eyes tend to glaze over. We don't quite know what to do with them. But anytime you see a genealogy in the Bible, it is there on purpose to teach you something. The writers have intentionally placed those genealogies to teach us. Right. In, Matthew's gene in Matthew's genealogy, um, this genealogy of Jesus, it has a mix of Jews and Gentiles in it. Now, you would think that it would just include Hebrews, Jews, that, that if he's the king of the Jews, that it would just be a long history of Jewish people, but it includes some surprising Gentile additions. Not only that, it's not just a genealogy of fathers all the way to Jesus, but it's a genealogy um, mixed with men and women present in the genealogy, which should surprise us and cause us to, to look closely at it. And not only that, but as we covered in the whole um, story series, Judah and Tamar, for instance, there's some pretty sketchy people in, G in Jesus's genealogy. These are not squeaky clean folks. The, there, are some, there are adulterers, there are murderers, there are people who have had incestuous relationships with family. There are, there are all kinds of, of just sketchy folks in Matthew's genealogy. And as Matthew continues to um, unfold this gospel for us in chapter one, um, he, uh, he tells us what Jesus's name means. So an angel appears to Joseph and Mary and says, you're gonna have a child and you should call this child's name Jesus or Yeshua, which means that God will save his people from their sins. So his name um, wraps up his identity and his purpose, but Matthew doesn't just stop there. He also gives us a title for Jesus he says, and he's going to be called or referred to as Emmanuel, which in the minds of the Jews who are hearing this or who are reading Matthew's gospel, they would immediately think back to their Old Testaments to a prophet named Isaiah 700 years before Christ lived, who also called this coming Messiah Emmanuel. And then Matthew in chapter one, he tells us what Emmanuel means. Well, what does it mean? If Jesus means he'll save his, God will save his people from their sins, Emmanuel means God is with us or God with us. I want you to hang on to that because that's important. Matthew then from chapter one starts to describe all kinds of different reasons that we have to marvel at Jesus. I want you to hold on to that word marvel. 
Uh, he starts to teach as one who has authority, not like the scribes. He starts healing people. He starts uh, freeing them from demonic oppression. He, he's, he's walking on water. He's speaking to the weather and it's obeying his voice. He's doing things that no other human being in history can do like him. And so Matthew just continues to present this picture of Jesus as one who is amazing and should be marveled at. And so as Matthew unfolds, there's just tasty morsels everywhere that we can just like feast on and that we can marvel at Jesus with. And we get uh, three full chapters of this like high concentrate teaching of Jesus in Matthew 5 through 7. And then we start to see him in chapter 8 and 9 specifically as a healer. And then in the, the, the following chapters as a reformer of Israel's worship, we get a front row seat through Matthew's gospel to the contours of Jesus's life. And then as Matthew, this gospel draws to a close, um, he show, Matthew shows us in this account of Jesus's resurrection. He dies on the cross for his people and he's raised to life from the grave on the third day. And the very first people who discover his empty tomb are women. And it's a mix of women and men who then come to the tomb and look in and they see that the real Jesus here is risen from the dead. As Jesus commissions the, la the, the disciples in the last two chapters of Matthew, or the last two verses rather, of Matthew, um, we see that this genealogy, like his genealogy foreshadowed, that just as Jesus came to Jews and Gentiles, he came, rather, he came from Jews and Gentiles, the, the people within his genealogy. Jesus also sends the disciples to the nations, not just to the house of Israel, but to the Gentiles as well. So Matthew's foreshadowing that in the genealogy, and then Jesus is sending his disciples to the Jews and Gentiles. And what is so profound, I think, about the end of Matthew's gospel is that Jesus himself says, behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And that's how the gospel closes. Remember, Matthew in chapter one said, he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. So there's all kinds of threads. What I'm trying to put before you, just like as a teaser, is there's all kinds of threads and things and themes in Israel's history that Matthew is working with to show how Jesus is the Christ. And Matthew's writing with a theological purpose to show Jesus is the rightful creator king descended from Abraham, descended from David, who is Messiah, who is making a new people group from every nation under heaven called the church. And here's why it matters. Because you and I are part of that legacy. You and I are part of the new people of God that he is creating. We are the legacy of his words, go to the nations. And the disciples obeyed and they went to the nations and the ones after them went to the nations and went to the nations and went to the nations. And that gospel has crossed the oceans, come all the way west from the east coast of the United States of America. And now we're hearing these words in Northern Idaho this morning. It's incredible. And now we find ourselves in chapter eight this summer or this morning. And there's one more thing that I want you to see and I'll be brief, but turn to Matthew chapter four. So 
Matthew sets up Jesus's origin story, his birth, his baptism, his commission to ministry. Jesus begins to um, proclaim, preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand in Matthew 4, 17. And then what Matthew does in verses 23 through 25 of chapter 4 gives us a preview of now what's coming. So he's doing this constantly in this gospel. This is why I call it a literary masterpiece. He's just, he, he, he's not just randomly telling us facts about Jesus, but he's designed this intentionally. He says, and Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's what Matthew's chap- Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 that are going to come right after this are about. He's teaching and he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And he's also healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So Jesus' fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed Jesus from Galilee and from the Decapolis, that word, that word there means 10 cities, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So what Matthew here is doing, he's our travel guide, he's the, the reader's travel guide, and he's offering the group a preview of the tour that he's about to take us on. He was teaching, he's proclaiming, we see that then in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and he's healing all kinds of diseases, and he's got great power that he's working with, and we see that in chapters 8 and 9, and we're in chapter 8 this morning. So Jesus has just wrapped up his Sermon on the Mount in chapter 8, verse 1. So we move from Jesus' words and his teaching now to his works, his deeds, his way of life. He talks the talk on the mountain, teaching as one who has authority, and now he's about to walk the walk and show the people that he really does have authority. And we're going to see Jesus interact with a handful of outsiders, people who do not seem to fit, especially to the religious folk of the day, and he is going to marvel them. And some of them are going to marvel him. And so I want you to be on the lookout for what marvels God. I want you to be on the lookout in this text today for what marvels Jesus. Uh, read with me, Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. I'm going to read this and just set it up so that you know where we're going this morning, so we're not flying, bl- flying blind. Um, when he came down from the mountain, teaching the Sermon on the Mount, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper, or a person with a, a, a contagious skin disease, came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded in the law for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came for, this is a a soldier for the Romans, came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I'll come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west. That's code language for Gentiles. Gentiles. 
Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, that's code language for the people of Israel, will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is God's word. First, we're going to start with, we're just going to go in three movements, Jesus and the leper, Jesus and the centurion, and then Jesus and the many. So uh, in this first section in verses one through, th- through four, um, leprosy in the first century is somewhat like cancer in our day. Um, dread is an appropriate first response if that diagnosis comes in. If you've battled cancer or you know someone who has battled cancer, you know that it is a life-changing diagnosis. The whole trajectory of a person's life and that of their family as well completely shifts. And atomic levels of a person's time and energy get aimed at beating this disease or overcoming it or dealing with it. But where first century leprosy and 21st century cancer differ is that leprosy would instantly isolate you from your support system. Now, leprosy also differs in the sense that cancer is not contagious, but leprosy was contagious. What cancer often does in our society is it amplifies a person's support system. Loved ones and the people who love you come around you and help encourage you and hold you up and provide for you and give you rides and help you beat it. But in Jesus's day, the person who had a, a, skin, a contagious skin disease that was just referred to broadly as leprosy, that person immediately became an outcast. Uh, you move out of your home, you leave your family behind, you leave your job, you leave your church, you leave all your loved ones, you leave your town or city, and you go and dwell outside of the city. And there's a process for them trying to heal themselves and cleanse themselves and then come and show themselves to the priest. And if the leprosy is not gone, they have to go another seven days. And if it's not gone again, they have to go another. And then if it's finally, it looks like it's here to stay, then they have to take some drastic measures to protect. These are civil laws meant to protect the people, to protect to protect society. And so in Leviticus um, chapters, chapter 13, verses 45 and 46, this is kind of the pronouncement. This is how a leprous person who has a, a form of permanent leprosy would have, to, um, would have to conduct themselves. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. Imagine yourself in this scenario. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now, when lepers, when a person with leprosy would approach people with a hand over their lip and they would say, unclean, unclean, 
This announcement that they were unclean would have an effect on the people around them. What would the people do? What would you do if they have a disease that will make you unclean if you touch them or they touch you? Right? You, you are going to move away from them. And there were laws, um, the rabbis had established laws that they had to keep six feet curious distance uh, from lepers at all times. We're familiar with that, right? To touch or to be touched by a leper would make you unclean and potentially uh, introduce you to the same fate as the person who had leprosy. So it was the same sentence. So it, it was very serious. Now, what's so remarkable about, about this interaction that this, lep- this man with leprosy has with Jesus is he comes to Jesus, he kneels in submission before Jesus, and Jesus does not back away from him. He does not avoid this man. So first, what does it tell us about the leper's heart posture? He's humble. He's submissive. He knows that Jesus has a kind of authority and can bring some sort of good to him that he needs. He's boldly where he needs to be in the presence of Jesus. And he calls Jesus Lord. This is a term of endearment, a term of respect. It's sort of like, sort of like sir in our day. And the first words out of his mouth are, if you will it, you can make me clean. So first we see that this leper is humble. He comes to Jesus in humility. He knows that the healer can heal him. And second, he reveres the healer, in effect saying, I believe, Jesus, that you are competent to provide for me what I need. And third, this sick man seems to respect Jesus and say, not my will, but your will be done. If you will it, if you choose, I know you have the power to do this. And so he defers to Jesus. It's really interesting. Jesus's inclination is to touch the untouchable. That's his inclination. This man had not experienced human touch in who knows how long. We know a lot. Science tells us a lot about human touch. If a child comes out of the womb and is untouched for a period of days and weeks, that will set them up for detachment disorders that will dog them and those who love them greatly for the rest of their lives. There are syndromes around lack of touch with humanity. It it fires our central nervous system. It, it, It fires our immune system. It does all, human touch and interaction does all kinds of good. And the first person to touch this unclean man is God himself. Then Jesus affirms and answers him, I will it, be clean. What do you notice about God's posture towards the the outsider? What do you notice about Jesus' heart toward the outsider? Notice something here too. The man's leprosy or uncleanness, it does not transfer to Jesus. Instead, Jesus' cleansing power overtook the man's disease. Jesus didn't become unclean. The man became clean. And Jesus respects the law of Moses. And so at this point, midlife with Jesus, he hadn't yet fulfilled the law yet. He hadn't yet brought it to completion. And so he honors it and he lives under the law. And so he asks a a, a valid question for every new, brand new follower of Jesus. Will you follow me by obeying what I tell you to do? By obeying my command? He tells this guy, hey, 
do not share this publicly yet. Jesus, he didn't want crowds. Crowds are already following him. And Mark's gospel tells us how much of a problem the crowds presented for Jesus and the hysteria and, and all of the commotion. And he says, hey, it's not yet my time. Don't announce this widely. But instead, here's what I want you to do. I want you to observe the law of Moses. I want you to go to the priest. I want you to show yourself to the priest. And as he pronounces you clean, then I want you to make the sacrificial offering. That's what um, is referred to in Matthew 8 about give the gift that Moses commanded. I want you to give the sacrificial offering that is necessary in this moment. Leviticus chapter chapters 13 and 14 talk about what this offering needs to be. So he, though healed, though poor as can be, like college broke, this guy makes a sacrificial offering and the cost for the sacrificial animal here is dramatically reduced. So this provision in Leviticus takes into consideration the fact that he would be broke. And it says it can simply be a a dove or a pigeon, but you need to follow through on the sacrificial offering. You need to obey the law. Imagine this healed man's gratitude. It's going to compel him to go and scrape up the change to buy a dove or to buy a pigeon or to buy a lamb, or to buy something even greater and just say, thank you, thank you. My whole life has been changed by you. Would he be indifferent to Jesus? I think that he would be incredibly open and obedient and responsive to Jesus. And so no doubt he marvels, this leprous man, and now clean, he marvels at the miracle worker whose touch restored all that he had lost and more. A question for us, are you learning to approach Jesus with your thank yous? Are you learning to approach Jesus with your thank yous, with your gratitude? Not about the major stuff only, about the minor stuff too, with our thank yous. Humble people who experience good things that we do not deserve do not take it for granted. The fruit that God's grace is always trying to, that, that his grace is always trying to produce is gratitude. Physical leprosy would separate people from people, but there is a kind of spiritual leprosy that will cost a man everything and give him nothing. The scriptures call it sin. It separates us from God. It isolates us from people. Some of the first thing that we do with sin when we're trapped in it or a slave to it is we isolate ourselves and we hide and we run from God and from the people around us. And so when we recognize that we've got a malady that is more serious than physical leprosy, spiritual leprosy, sin, trying to exert its control in us, but by the mercy of God, we have received by humble reverent, submissive faith. He is restored to us, the hope of life forever with him and with each other. Like when that lands on you and I, what springs up? Gratitude. Like when we recognize all that Jesus has done for us. So when you encounter, church, when you encounter Jesus and he does something for you, the only, and, and for I, the only appropriate response for us is to obey him, particularly if he asks something of us. It's not paying him back. That's impossible. We do not operate on that merit system. But our gratitude does show up in our loyalty to him and our willingness and our, our, our propensity to, to just obey him. 
I want to move to Jesus and the centurion in in, uh, verses 5 through 13. We're going to see a different kind of outsider come humbly to Jesus. This centurion is a Gentile military man. We don't know for a fact if he was a Roman or just a Gentile from another nation who had kind of conscripted with the Romans and was serving them. Uh, But the Romans are those who are occupying and regulating the Jewish people, and the Jewish people don't want it, but the Jewish people are stuck with it. The name, the title centurion here um, tells us that this soldier had authority over a hundred other soldiers. That was his scope of authority, a century, a centurion. And, um, and as we see them, we go, leprous man, Jewish guy probably outside the camp yelling unclean, people are backing away from him, but now we see a guy who looks way, way, way different than the leprous man. He is working for the Romans, and he is a military man, and he oversees, he's got some authority. We're tempted to think, whoa, these stories are like, these guys are way different, but I think they're far more alike than we think here. Uh, Matthew wants us to see it, that's why he's put them together. Two different kinds of outsiders coming before one creator king. First, they both come to Jesus in humility. Number one, they come to Jesus. Number two, they come to Jesus in humility. They seek him out. They've got needs before Jesus and they state those needs. And and second, they revere him. They revere the healer in this moment. In effect, saying, hey, you're competent. I've come to seek you out because I've heard about you that you are competent and what's interesting about the centurion here is he doesn't make an ask. He, he just states his dilemma. That's it. He just states his dilemma. My servant at home is paralyzed and he's suffering terribly. In effect, I'm here on his behalf interceding for him. I'm here on his behalf asking you to do something for him. Both the leprous man and the centurion respect Jesus greatly as well. Um, A commentator on Matthew, he's brilliant. He's a former prof at Whitworth. His name is Frederick Dale Bruner. He writes this. He says, faith mainly talks to the Lord. Think about this. This uh, This has to be encouraging to you or you're not listening. Faith mainly talks to the Lord. It often hardly knows what to ask him or how to ask it. Sometimes all one needs to do is state the problem. The how and the what of help are the Lord's business. Lord, my son is in terrible pain. That's enough. Jesus answers this Gentile soldier, I will come and heal him. Now, there's a a, a teaching, commentaries on the Old Testament that have been developed over the centuries by the rabbis called the Mishnah. And this Mishnah states for the Jewish people, this is kind of a code of conduct. It's how they interpreted the Old Testament. This Mishnah states that if a Jew entered the home of a Gentile, that they would become instantly unclean. So if Jesus enters this Roman centur- or the centurion's home, it would make him unclean instantly, and it would invite harsh criticism for the Jewish community. But like with the leper, Jesus moves almost instantly across religious and cultural barriers to help. It's profound. Can you see the courage and kindness in Jesus' response to the centurion and to the man with, with leprosy? So I want to ask, as Jesus' ambassadors, what kind of cultural and religious barriers might we cross in order to help? Who are your enemies? 
Who are the people who are too far from Jesus' grace? The neighbor down the street, the political enemy? Who are they? The cultural enemy? The centurion seems to understand Jewish custom. And he seems to potentially even here be like just trying to protect Jesus um, while understanding that Jesus has a kind of authority that's familiar to him and it's unfamiliar to him. Okay, I'm, I've got authority over 100 Roman soldiers. I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and another, get me this, and he gets him this. I understand that, but Jesus, you seem to have a different kind of authority that I've been hearing about where you're heal- healing people. You're doing all kinds of things that's like messing with weather and nature and the natural order of things as I have understood them. You have a different kind of authority, and you can't come into my house because if you come into my house, that's going to harm you, and I'm asking you to help me. What makes Jesus marvel here? Let's start up in verse eight of chapter eight. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. Skip down to verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Nobody among the Jews. Nobody among the people that I was initially sent to have I, have I found this kind of faith. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna nerd out uh, on you for a moment. I really, really like words. I like etymology. I like to know like what is behind words. You'll hear me say words have meaning, and I believe that they do. There's a Greek word under this word marvel here, and it's the word thamazo. Um, it's used 43 times in the New Testament. I looked up all of them. I've confirmed this word. Three times it's used to speak of something that Jesus feels towards other people. Forty times it's used to speak of what people feel, the way that they marvel at Jesus. It's a word that can be translated marvel, wonder, or awe. The two time, the, of the three times that it's used to speak of what Jesus feels towards people, it's used of this account twice, here in Matthew and also in Luke's gospel. And Luke tells the story a little bit differently, but it can be easily reconciled. Luke says the centurion sent servants to Jesus to ask the question. Matthew says the, the, the centurion came to Jesus, but whether it was the servants or the centurion, the servant is the one who gave the orders and the, the, the request was made and the healing occurred. And so it can be reconciled. Anyway, that word marveling, Jesus in both accounts says, I haven't found faith like this in all of Israel. That's two of the three times it's used to speak of Jesus. The other time that it's used to speak of how Jesus marvels at people is in Mark chapter six, verse six, where he says, he marveled at their unbelief. He marvels at a lack of faith. So two times he marvels at the centurion's faith And once he marvels at people's lack of faith in his own hometown, in Nazareth. So what's the takeaway? It seems that people, if we marvel at Jesus in the scriptures 40 times, seems that we marvel at his miracles and and his power, and some would marvel at who he is, his identity, his person, the fact that he was Messiah. But Jesus marvels mostly at people's faith or unbelief. This means that our faith is very, very, very important. There's a principle under this, that our faith is important to God. He cares about it. If that's how we receive salvation, by believing, 
You're saved by faith. And the two times that Je- and the, the two different times that Jesus marvels is faith of the centurion and, and lack of faith in the in the Nazarenes, the people from Nazareth. Man, like we need to pay attention. So I want you to imagine coming to Jesus and trusting him for that person you love but who feels unhealable. I want you to imagine coming to Jesus and trusting him for that person who feels unreachable. It's reasonable to believe that you and I are delighting the heart of God when we reaffirm our trust to Jesus, in Jesus, that he can do the unbelievable. Did you hear that? Delights the heart of God when you ascribe to him the power that he possesses. You can do this. If you will, I know you are competent. Now, none of these insiders, the the Jews, have exercised this kind of trust in him to this point in Matthew's gospel. And now Jesus gets even more controversial saying, there's gonna be all kinds of people who come from the East and the West, supposed outsiders, Gentiles, who will enter the kingdom of heaven and receive the promised inheritance that is promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And they're gonna be sons of Israel. They're gonna be people of Israel who get tossed out and are cut off from life with God. They have not exercised faith in the Son of God, but they have rejected him. What uh, Bruner, Frederick Dale Bruner says about this is he says, what Jesus is attacking here is that possessiveness, that sense of exclusiveness, which disfigures every religious community that is too sure of itself the harsh ones who are consistently judging other people as out and themselves in. Bruner goes on to say, the church should feel herself questioned when she reads Jesus's people of God critical stories. So anytime Jesus is critical of the people of God, we ourselves should be willing to search our own hearts and say, Lord, would you search me? Would you know my heart? If there's, grieve, if, if there's ways within me that grieve you, would you reveal them to me so that I can walk away from them and towards you? We should feel ourselves questioned. Now, he does speak or allude to hell here. Whatever hell is, wherever hell is, the point is that we should see it as something ultimate to avoid. Ultimate separation from God. It's not the main point of the story, but Jesus speaks of it. Now we're gonna transition to Jesus and the many, uh, verses 14 through 17. Jesus was on the road with these disciples and apparently Peter's house uh, was some sort of a pit stop on the way or a destination. And they walk into this house and he finds Jesus's mother-in-law sick with a fever, the kind of fever that levels you the kind of fever that puts you in bed. We've experienced some of these in the last couple of years, right? The kind that just take us out. Jesus touches Peter's mother-in-law, wills her healing, and the fever vanishes. Notice something. Her healing was so complete in this moment that she needs no recovery. None. None. Like there's no ramp up back to getting all of her energy back. She just gets up and she serves Jesus. When you encounter the power of Jesus and he does something powerful for you like healing, the only appropriate response is to serve him in gratitude, right? It's not paying back. That is impossible. 
but our gratitude, it shows up in our enthusiasm to serve him. How, what are you, what are you asking of me? Yes, I'll, I'll go. What's interesting here too is that the word that Matthew uses for Peter's mother-in-law serving him is the word diakoneo, which means deacon. She deaconed him. She served him. Now, verse 16 says, and they brought him, all kinds of people with various diseases and who were demon oppressed. Who are the they in this text? Who do you think the they are? Neighbors, family, friends, coworkers, loved ones, whoever was in their sphere of influence, hear about Jesus's reputation and just start rallying their friends to him. What can this be but intercession? What can this be but people interceding for the good of their friends, saying, hey, you need Jesus in this moment, right? Not all of our sicknesses are related to Satan and the demonic. Matthew separates them here. Some are, for sure, but some are related to our fallen condition. Things including our bodies, they're in a weakened, they're in a vulnerable state, which the fall is a result of Satan and his influence, and so it's indirectly uh, due to our diseases and our weaknesses are due to some of his influence. But what Matthew is wanting us to see here in the story of the man with leprosy and the story of the Roman centurion and the story of Peter's mother-in-law and the story of the many here is that Jesus has authority over it all. And he's starting to set that up. And so our reasonable response to Jesus is humility, it's reverence, it's obedience, it's deference. Whatever it is that you will, Lord, so be it. He is Lord. And so our first move in showing him humility and reverence and obedience and deference is to come to him. That's our first move. It's to come to him. Here's where I'll land with some application that I've already touched on and I'm just going to revisit briefly here. Uh, we often overcomplicate our relationship with Jesus. We make it very, very, very complicated. We overcomplicate what it means to develop a real push and pull, talk and listen, responsive relationship with the real Jesus. So I wanna ask you the question, do you come to him? Do you come to him? Do you come humbly? Do you come telling him what to do? Or do you come recognizing what he can do, leaving the what and leaving the how to him? I'm on the hardcore struggle bus on this front in the last four months, five months. Like it's a struggle and I'm fighting it, but it's a struggle to come to Jesus. It's easier to read a book. It's easier to write a sermon. It's easier to meet with friends. It's easier to do all that kind of stuff than it is to like, quiet myself, create space, and come to him and name for him what my hopes are, what my hurts are, what my pain is, what my needs are, what other people's needs are. It's just been a struggle. And I'm fighting. And by God's grace, you are fighting too. We must. We cannot give up. It is hard. My flesh is weak. My spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak in this season, and I recognize it. Sometimes the hardest thing that we can do is come to Jesus with our pain, with faith that is open, from some, open to something from him that's different from what we expect, the kind that says, if you're willing, you can do it. And I wanna note, just stewing on things is not prayer. 
just thinking about things endlessly in your mind is not prayer. Speaking it out into the universe is not prayer. Prayer is humbly coming to God with our whole self. The good, the bad, the ugly, the undecided. Uh, I I don't even know how to vocalize it, Jesus. Here's where I'm at. And then the last thing I want to ask is, do you come to Jesus on behalf of others, interceding for them? Your family, your loved ones, your friends, your neighbors. What does it look like for you to intercede regularly on behalf of yourself? And the leper interceded on behalf of himself. He stated his needs. The centurion came to Jesus interceding on behalf of another. Jesus interceded for Peter's mother-in-law. We don't know if she requested it or Peter requested it or Peter's wife requested it. We don't have any idea. But then we see at the end of this text that we're in this morning that all kinds of people start bringing all their people who need Jesus' touch and influence.